0: Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Today we are discussing the third installment in our Humphrey Bogart retrospective series, the critically acclaimed The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. This is your co-host Corbin.
1: (laughs) I'm Alan from Chicago. I guess that must be just the subtitle, The Critically Acclaimed Sierra Madre.
0: Yes, that is the official subtitle. (laughs) No, just kidding. This is it's more critically acclaimed than I thought. I mean, uh, we'll get into kind of what it's rated and what how it kind of made a splash when it first came out. But you always hear about Casablanca, which we did review. You can go listen to our review. And then you always hear about the Maltese Falcon. The treasure of the Sierra Madre is well known. It's well liked, but I had no idea once I watched this documentary attached to the Blu-ray. This movie is huge, in some ways bigger than Casablanca.
1: Now that's even, that's quite surprising. I mean, I have heard of the Sierra Madre before, but I really knew nothing about it aside from just the name. Uh, And yeah, even when I was just doing some research for this, I was like, it's Roger Ebert's, like, no, no, Stanley Kubrick's, like, fourth favorite movie of all time, which is kind of a big deal. So I didn't realize how big it was with critics, I maybe even back in the day, and probably even as well as it is now. But, yeah, very surprising that this movie is as critically acclaimed as it is. Because, yeah, like you said, we usually only hear about uh, Casablanca or Maltese Falcon, not as much about Treasure, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Not to say that it isn't, not to say that it isn't there, but... Not as much.
0: Well, they're nearly rated the same on IMDb. Casablanca has an 8.5 and Treasure of the Sierra Madre has an 8.3. Now, uh, and they actually won the exact same amount of Oscars. Uh, Casablanca had a few more nominations. And, of course, Casablanca is way higher on IMDb's top 250. It's number 36, and this is number 120.
1: Right. That just seems kind of natural, though.
0: But the Oscars that did win were John Huston won. John Huston, we also should note, uh, directed The Maltese Falcon.
1: Right. Yeah. He's kind of we're coming back to uh, John Huston. I think we even mentioned in that podcast that him and Humphrey Bogart were kind of like a team, like you would think, like you would see now with uh, Christopher Nolan and uh, uh, crap, Michael Caine. That's his name. Or Damien Chazelle and Ryan Gosling. It's kind of one of those pairs of director and actor that just do a lot of movies together.
0: Yeah, it it is. And even after the Maltese Falcon, they did treasure of the Sierra Madre. Then right after that, they did Key Largo together and they've done a few others as well. And I'll be honest listeners. I'll tell you right now, this is my favorite Bogart movie that I've seen. I have fond memories of watching this with my dad in the summer I love watching Bogart with him, and this is one of my favorites. I'll save telling you why it's one of my favorites, but just to start off the bat, I do love this movie.
1: And I know I've heard this before, uh, that you this is one of your favorites. So it'd be interesting to see where our conversation goes uh, here from here on out. Not to say that it isn't a great movie, I would just go out and say it now. I think it is a very, very good movie. Uh, but I am completely new to this. This is nothing I've seen before. So it'd be interesting to have a, somebody who's had experience with this and somebody as usual who has had no experience with this. This tends to be a thing that we try to do as often as we can.
0: And I should note, I did mention the, it did win the Oscar for best director. John Houston won that. He also wrote the screenplay and then bam, he won the Oscar again right after well he won best he won writer an and then he won the and then he won the oscar for best director and then his dad who plays in this movie as one of the main characters won best supporting actor and that's so cool cuz i think that's the only time in cinema history a father and son have won the academy award for the same movie
1: that's pretty impressive though
0: oh yeah that it's really cool i didn't know mm-hmm. that until doing the um, studying for this movie it did also was nominated for Best Picture, but it lost Best Picture to Laurence Olivier's Hamlet. Many people were surprised by this because many thought it would get Best Picture, but at the time, British movies were extremely popular. They called this time period kind of the British invasion in Hollywood where a lot of British actors were, you know, big stars. And uh, the people in this movie... Despite us thinking of Humphrey Bogart as a big star today, which he is in our minds, at the time, he really wasn't what we would consider just this big Tom Cruise-esque star. Uh, He It took him a long time before he got to where he was, and it was these movies, uh, The Maltese Falcon, then Casablanca... And then right after that, he was able to sign a big picture deal with Warner Brothers. And the first movie he did right after that was this movie, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And he signed a picture deal with Warner Brothers. They're like, you'll get at least one movie a year and each movie you'll get paid $200,000, which is huge. But it took Humphrey Bogart to be a middle-aged person before he achieved this. And uh, I'll tell you in just a minute what his fans thought of this role. Uh, they weren't too pleased. But uh, we'll talk about that here in just a minute.
1: Yeah, it is. Now, of course, $200,000 back in that those days is a lot of money. Uh, of course, we now have inflation. So it just looks like it's not <laughs> as much. But even then, right. it's a good sum of money.
0: Oh, yeah, it, it really is. So like I said, I have the Blu-ray. I have the... The best of Bogart collection on Blu-ray, which I highly recommend you pick up. It comes with a lot of great of his films and some nice bonus features and collectibles as well. Uh, one thing I kind of wanted to mention, just, it was kind of funny. On the Blu-ray, I, it came with a Looney Tunes cartoon. Really? Yeah, it was called Eight Ball Bunny. It was one of the old Looney Tunes, and I guess because they're both made by Warner Brothers, they're like, hey, let's include a Looney Tunes cartoon from the era.
1: <laughs> it was That's weird. interesting. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I do want to give you, listeners, some background into this movie. The creation of this movie is pretty crazy actually i had no idea any of this production history until uh watching this movie and watching this documentary but it's pretty wild to say the least so this is based upon a book of the same title the book is written by b Travin, and this person named b Travin. they traveled to mexico not long after the american civil war to witness kind of this gold rush in mexico where a lot of these American corporations and people of all uh, races and ethnicities were rushing down there to strike it rich. And B. Traven was pretty much disgusted by the whole ordeal. And he blamed um, these Americans coming into Mexico and just raping the land of all of its, you know, resources. He blamed it on capitalism. So he wrote this book called The Treasure of the Sierra Madre and his book teems with anti-capitalism, anti-materialism. It challenges the Spanish oppression of the native Indians and it has a strong indictment on the church's role in all of this. I can't help but point out the irony, though, because this movie is made by capitalists getting rich from the movie. (laughs) That is very ironic. Yes. (laughs) Oh, well, anyways. So the big catch is... No one knew who B. Traven was, and to this day, nobody actually really knows who he is. Interesting. His identity has always remained a secret, and it's known as the Riddle of B. Traven. Hmm. So the book was published in the United States in 1935, but it was published originally in German in the mid-1920s because he didn't want it published in any capitalist country
1: interesting yeah
0: so but the film was rejected by warner brothers twice before this because it was considered too downbeat it was originally suggested to be turned into a south american melodrama comedy uh-huh. yeah it didn't work they shut that down immediately they're like that's stupid so eventually the very young director john houston comes on the scene he loved the book and he petitioned his agent to secure the rights for the movie. But the problem is, World War II broke out. John Huston was drafted. He was called up to go into the service. But luckily, he got to make like World War II documentaries while he was in the war. But this movie that he really wanted to make is getting floated all around Hollywood. It's uh, It was announced that Edward G. Robinson... Which who would star in Houston's next movie, Key Largo. It was announced he would be in the movie. Four different writers were writing different scripts and one of the partially written scripts was set in L.A. after World War II, basically having almost nothing to do with the actual story. And there was this uh, producer named Blanc, and he really wanted Houston to make the movie. And he was worried because they actually did have a director, Vincent Sherman. He was Just about to go into production for the movie when all of a sudden it's been rumored that Blanc crafted this ruse and had the Breen office claim the script was derogatory towards Mexicans, which shut down the production and they took the script away from Vincent Sherman. And this was all to keep the movie from any out of all Hollywood hands until John Huston couldn't come back from the war.
1: That is so interesting. Yeah.
0: And when he huh. did come back from the war, he tweaked just a few things because he wrote the script for this movie he himself, and then he also directed it. And a few of the things he tweaked from the book, uh, he softened the character Curtain to make him more of a counterpart to Dobbs, and he also turned the character Goldhat into um, Dobbs's darker alter ego. And after the script was finished, uh, he went riding in a steeplechase to celebrate it But then he nearly died and he nearly crashed and killed himself. And then he's like, oh, before I direct this movie, I want to go. He went to New York to direct No Exit on Broadway for a bit. Mm -hmm. What? And then he goes, then he comes to Burbank on uh, December 16th, 1946 to begin production on the movie. So this guy's got a busy life coming off from the war and almost dying in a steeplechase. Then he goes to direct a Broadway play just to put production on hold so he could direct a Broadway play. Anyways, so he comes back to Burbank, only to quickly move production to Mexico to shoot on location.
1: Right, I heard that this is one of the very first movies from Hollywood, technically speaking, that was ever shot on location.
0: Yes, that's correct. That was a really big deal at the time, because films were not shot on location, because studios had built giant back lots and uh, big sound stages so they could just recreate the environments they wanted to create for the movie without actually having to travel because that would be much more expensive to pack everybody up and travel and bring right. all the equipment and stuff but nevertheless john houston was adamant about shooting in mexico and he kind of had to fight for it but eventually he did get to shoot in mexico and uh, not to say this movie isn't shot on some sets because they did recreate a lot of the city of Tampico on Warner Brothers sets. And ultimately, uh, the movie, I'll get into this in just a minute, it went way over shooting schedule. So then they had to move it back to the Warner Brothers lots and they finished shooting the movie there. Um, but while in Mexico, Houston and the author Traven corresponded via letters and Traven was supposed to meet Houston in Mexico. And Houston claims he woke up one night to a man standing over him named Hal Croves, who claimed to be Travin's representative, and he stayed on and was consultant on, on the film while they shot in Mexico. Interesting. And Houston uh people speculated that Croves was actually Traven, just changing his name, but many people didn't believe it. Even his like people have written about him, even John Houston himself did not believe Crows to be Traven. But at Crows' death, he claimed he was B. Traven. But hmm. but nobody believed him. <laughs> so, yeah. So the uh, mystery still stands. The it, The mystery still stands. It is not confirmed who B. Traven is, and likely nobody will ever know who it was who wrote the book. Right. So anyways, John Houston and Traven... The like he had correspondence with them, they had a falling out, and after the movie was shot, and Travin said, Houston will never adapt one of my books again because he um, was trying to say how Croves was me, and that's not true. And it was a really silly scenario. Mm-hmm. But uh, something that really cool happened was um, John's father, Walter Houston, who was an established actor, um, was going to be cast in the movie and with Traven's approval he was originally going to be the role of Dobbs
1: interesting
0: which is weird because Walter Houston plays Howard the old man and uh, not Dobbs is a much younger man in the movie but that's kind of who Traven wanted Uh, that didn't work out they had him as Howard they recast him and uh, I should say that we've actually seen Walter Houston in John's previous movie the Maltese Falcon. Really? <laughs> yes. I had to think about it for a bit too, and ultimately I had to look it up. He plays the bit part as an in joke of Captain Jacoby when he brings Falcon into Humphrey Bogart's office and he has the knife in his back.
1: Oh, okay.
0: That's Walter okay. Houston. That's his dad.
1: Gotcha. Alright. So I see it.
0: As for the role of Curtin, originally, it was actually going to be played by Ronald Reagan.
1: Now, that would have been very interesting to see because I know that he was an actor. I know that probably because of Back to the Future. Yeah. Uh, But it would have been interesting to, to see a movie and actually review one on here with Ronald Reagan as the lead or a lead or a character, a main character in the story, which we haven't done yet
0: it would be fascinating i've never seen a ronald reagan movie but i will say i am glad they landed on tim holt who plays in this movie and his father jack holt was a very famous uh, leading man and he's actually in this movie he is the hobo sitting at howard's feet when they go to that hostel and when we first are in the hostel and we first meet howard he's talking to a guy and that's um, uh, Tim Holt's dad so it's really cool gotcha. how there's a lot of father and son dynamics in this movie
1: yeah yeah definitely
0: and uh, at the time Tim Holt was just really known for being in B-movie cowboy movies but then he would just all of a sudden pop up in powerful dramas like critically acclaimed dramas like Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons which is coming out on Criterion soon I'm looking forward to that and then he came out in Sierra Madre, so he was mostly a B-actor ba- in cowboy movies, but then all of a sudden he would be in these bigger movies. Also, the uh, actor Bruce Bennett, who plays Cody, his original name is actually Herman Bricks, he actually competed in the 1932 Olympics as a shot putter. Ooh. How interesting. Uh, this movie is just like, what? All these actors and different people. I, it's crazy. Yeah. So, and I should note that John Huston himself is in this movie. Okay. Did you recognize him? No. I didn't either until I saw the special features. Okay. You know, in the beginning of the movie where Bogart's character is walking around asking for money and he keeps running into the guy with the white suit. Yeah. That's John Huston.
1: Well, that explains why he looks so familiar to me.
0: Yeah, I thought that was really cool how he put himself in the movie. And there's mm-hmm. I there's also another famous person with a bit part in this movie. I don't remember their name. But uh, they just made a point to show that all of these big cameos were like placed with, within the movie. Yeah. So when they did shoot on location, it was really hot and miserable. John Huston loved it and Bogart hated it. So the other really cool thing is all the actors you see in Mexico are either uh, actual Mexican actors, or most of them are actually just walk-on people. And reportedly, even one of them was a real bandit.
1: Interesting. I know that they actually paid them, I think, 10 pesos, which is roughly two bucks a day, to act, which even then was a pretty good deal of money for those, uh, I guess, the actors that were natural, I guess that came from this location, so... But I did know that there was one that was actually a bandit that may have been on set reportedly.
0: It's really cool, though, because it lends itself to the believability of these films that these people aren't actually actors. They are actually just local Mexicans who just kind of walked on for those, you know, bit parts or background extras. But the problem was the film was going way over its shooting schedule, which caused Jack Warner, the creator of Warner Brothers, clearly. He was really nervous. He's like, what's going on here? And also he was pretty nervous because Bogart was known as a clean-shaven gangster type. But he looks really scruffy and disheveled and gross. And they're like, oh my gosh, the leading man looks horrible. What are people going to think of this? Because that was so uncommon back then. So, But going over shooting schedule was actually frustrating Bogart. And one night they were sitting down to dinner. Bogart gets kind of loud and vocal with Houston about, hey, I've got a boat race that I want to go to. I don't really want to keep shooting this movie forever. So John Houston grabbed Humphrey Bogart's nose and twisted it so hard that it caused Humphrey Bogart's wife, who is the famous actress Lauren Bacall, who those two would actually star in John Houston's next movie, Key Largo, together. She was down there on shoot, like just cooking them home cooked meals. Uh, she, she's like started yelling at John Houston saying, you're hurting my husband. What the heck's going on? And after that, Humphrey Bogart never complained on set again. Oh my. He twisted his nose.
1: That's very, very interesting. This is, this is probably one of the more interesting, uh, production background info segments I think I've ever heard in our podcast so far. I think
0: so too. But finally, shooting ended, took them five and a half months, which was 29 days over schedule,
1: which still pretty long. I mean, today movies shoot within around three months or so ish, give or take about a month and a half.
0: Oh, yeah, it's pretty long. It was way too long. He Jack Warner is telling John Houston, get back here. We can shoot some of these shots at the end. I mean, we can shoot that anywhere here in California. And he's like, no. I'm shooting them in Mexico and I'm not coming back until I'm done shooting. (laughs) Right. Well, when the movie finally did hit theaters, it had rave reviews from the critics. Uh, The only thing that critics didn't care for was a lot of critics deemed the score was melodramatic and heavy handed at times.
1: I guess I can see why they would think that.
0: So and at the time, this was considered by critics Humphrey Bogart's best performance.
1: I can see that, too. And
0: mind you, Casablanca had already come out.
1: Right, which is a pretty big deal. Yes.
0: Uh, Unfortunately, Bogart's fans at the time didn't like his performance because he was unsavory, he wasn't romantic, and he just wasn't a gangster.
1: (laughs) I mean, it is a very different role from what you'd normally see Humphrey Bogart doing, because usually he's like a private investigator and is uh, rather tough and very monotone. Right. Rather different in this movie. He's kind of all over the place. Yeah,
0: he is. Uh, It's just funny because today we love character actors and just like people who Mm -hmm. do kind of more regular type of acting as well. But it's just funny to be frustrated over an actor doing something different.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well,
0: anyways, it, this movie kind of had a lot of trouble marketing itself, and the marketing department had no idea how to present this to the audience. Um, one of their ideas was they created a men's clothing line to tie in with the movie, but it the clothes were nothing like what they wore in the movie. It was just a bunch of suits of like... Uh, and they had Humphrey Bogart endorse it by wearing these suits. And they said, these are the tie-in suits to the Treasure of the Sierra Madre movie. And they had like a women on the front covers of the posters to try and make it look kind of romantic and intriguing. And uh, they're like, how do we market this kind of movie? Because audiences at the time were used to romantic movies where the leading man gets the leading lady there's no leading lady in this movie which was really different for the time also it's pretty uh bleak for the whole movie where basically a bunch of men are just at each other's throats the whole time constantly threatening violence and descending into madness audiences weren't used to that audiences yeah there might be some bad things going on in the movie but there's always a happy ending and for this kind of movie they're like, what? I'm not spoiling the ending here, listeners, but they were just um, expecting, they just wanted a happy movie, and it was interesting because Robert Osborne, the famous film historian and TCM host, said it was a miracle this movie even got made, because Western audiences wanted a happy movie with a happy ending, whereas in the East, like in Europe, movies were taking real looks at human lives and outcomes. And despite critics loving it and some audiences appreciating it, most audiences didn't really care for it at the time, therefore it did poorly at the box office. And Osborne further said, we should forgive the audience at the time because they weren't ready for this more European-esque film, which I found that to be really fascinating.
1: Yeah, and I know that, especially at the time, typically your socioeconomic standings is the clothes you wear around this era. That's just kind of how the society worked. And so yeah, even like you said, having them kind of dressed a bit more drab and not really in the most uh most elaborate looking suits, and having to push suits as part of the clothing line for the movie when in reality they had nothing really to do with the story. It's it's such it's very interesting because it I guess you could even say is kind of ahead of its time because of at least the way that the story's told. It not necessarily being something that the audience has been used to, which is being very romantic. This is very kind of not so, which is very, very interesting. Oh,
0: very much so. This movie is what really opened up the doors for allowing movies in the West to not always have a happy ending, per se, or the leading man was kind of a bad guy. Bogart was considered the first anti-hero and uh, not just for this movie, but for other movies as well. So yeah, because nowadays we have very, you know, postmodern movies or things just before the podcast, Alan and I were talking about the Sicario movies, and those aren't very happy movies, but they tell a great story. And I think we can attribute some of that to this movie, actually, because of a lot of the things it did differently that really shocked audiences, but it did open up for more movies to take a look at. Kind of real life humanity and interactions, and not just this kind of fairy tale, New esque world.
1: And at this time too, World War Two had really kind of just ended. Ended about three years before this, uh, and so at least with those movies, you kind of really wanted more happy endings because of the World War. Right. So it was just kind of very, very interesting. Uh, even with that, that this movie kind of didn't exactly have one of those. It was like you kind of like insinuated. It's kind of depicting real life, which, as we kind of already been discussing here, is not something—not necessarily that they haven't been doing this, but not something at least in this way that Hollywood has really been pursuing uh, to tell a story as much as anybody else. And of course, John Huston—it it sounds like he just really likes to push, at least in this time of uh, this time of film. He really pushed for things that we would see all, happen a lot later on. and Kane, I know, was one that had a lot of different things that you really, had, filmmaking techniques that you really hadn't seen before. And then this one kind of goes to show that you can still tell a story with a very sad and not so happy ending and make it even, bit, maybe even a greater impact on the audience with that.
0: Another kind of shock at the time, was when it did get to the Oscars we already talked about that but many people were shocked Bogart didn't get nominated for his role in this movie
1: that is kind of a shock I wonder who did he get beat out by
0: oh I don't know I do not know who was up for best actor at the time but he didn't even get on the nomination list which is surprising considering Houston won two Oscars and his dad also did and the movie was nominated for best picture but Bogart didn't, and many con- many considered
1: it his best role at the time. I can definitely see that okay. Uh looking at it now, the lead actor for Hamlet won best actor. Still, though, that is that is very surprising that he didn't get a uh, nomination for this because if it's considered I mean, it's considered to be one of his best roles, and of course we'll get into that and talk about it. But that is very interesting because Hogart Hobart Hogarth has been even at this point has been considered to be a great actor. I would assume.
0: Well, listeners, hopefully that crazy backstory to the movie hopefully whetted your appetite to hear what we have to say about it. We are going to get into spoilers for Treasure of the Sierra Madre, so if you don't want this movie spoiled for you, then I recommend that you click pause right now, go out and rent the movie, watch it, come back and click play, and we'll be ready to talk about it. Spoilers ahead. Tampico, Mexico, February 1925. Fred C. Dobbs, played by Humphrey Bogart, is a down-on-his-luck guy without a penny to his name. He spends his days bothering fellow Americans if they'll stake him for a meal. He he befriends a fellow homeless man named Curtin, played by Tim Holt. The two find work with a man named McCormick, played by Barton McLean, who guarantees he'll pay them as soon as they get back to Tampico, except he never pays them. A few days later, they find him in a bar and beat the snot out of him, taking their share of the money. That night, they buy a room in a hostel where they meet Howard, played by Walter Houston, who tells other homeless men of his experience mining gold. Curtin and Dobbs get the idea to team up with Howard to see if they can strike it rich in the Sierra Madre Mountains. After a long, arduous journey, they begin to find gold, but quickly worry about maintaining their fair share. They split their daily findings three ways, each hiding theirs from the other in a secret location. One day, the gold mine caves in on Dobbs, who has already threatened murder on the others, but Curtin saves his life with little thanks from Dobbs. As the day goes on, the atmosphere between the three becomes increasingly tense. Dobbs begins talking to himself, assuming the others are conspiring against him. Curtin is unsure of the whole ordeal, and Howard remains the most level-headed, after having losing his previous gold fortune from greed. The group needs fresh supplies, so Curtin rides into town where he encounters another American named Cody, played by Bruce Bennett, who has come to find gold in the mountains. Curtin does his best to lie to Cody, claiming he is simply hunting in the mountains for pelts, but Cody figures otherwise, so he follows Curtin up the mountain, even after being told he is not welcome at Curtin's camp. When Cody arrives at the camp, he is surprised to find Curtin has two other companions. They begrudgingly allow him to spend the night, but the following morning, they vote to let Cody have it with their pistols. Before they can shoot him, Cody warns of a group of bandits coming up the mountain straight towards them. They either die together, or they work together to fend them off. Choosing the latter, the four bunker down and engage in a shootout with the bandits. Just when things begin to look grim as the group runs out of ammunition, the Federales aka the mexican police chase the bandits out of the mountains Curtin, howard and Dobbs survive but they find cody dead from a gunshot wound on cody's person they find a letter from his wife expressing how much she and their son miss him and hopes he'll return home soon because they're already rich in love and family not seeming to phase the group they bury cody but that night Curtin claims he'll give a fourth of his share to cody's widow and howard claims he'll do the same whereas Dobb derides their compassion. Figuring they have enough gold to last them a lifetime, they begin the long trek down the mountain. One night, a group of native Indians asks for medical help. Howard leaves the group to help a sick boy recover. Curtin and Dobbs are left together, where they begin a game of cat and mouse started by Dobbs. See, Dobbs decides they'll just take Howard's share instead of meeting him in Durango to give it to him. But Curtin declines, so Dobb makes a bet whoever falls asleep first will be the first one to die. Unfortunately, Curtin falls asleep and is shot twice by Dobbs. But he does not die and finds two locals who bring him to Howard, who is living it up. The two of them set out to overtake Dobbs and secure their gold. But Dobbs is nearing the end of his abilities to carry on when three bandits, the same ones from the mountain, murder him stealing his burros and throwing away the gold dust into the wind, figuring it for sand. When Curtin and Howard find this out, they laugh off the ordeal as all is vanity. Howard gives Curtin his share of the money from the pelts and burros, if he'll use the money to visit Cody's widow. Curtin agrees to go to Texas, where he'll meet the widow and son, and become a peach picker, his life's dream. And Howard goes back to be the revered head of the village, as credits roll.
1: And I think the one thing that really surprised me was a, would have been about the time that, actually, it was the time when Cody died. Because uh, for like the first, I guess it would have been around an hour or so. I'm just like, I know where this movie's headed. I know exactly what it's trying to say. Money is the root of all evil. <laughs> it, money corrupts everything and all kinds of stuff like that. Then it gets to the, then it gets to Cody's death. And they spend a lot of time on talking about the wife and reading off the letter. And things like with the wife and the son and things like that. And it was like, hang on. There is something more here that I didn't even consider. Uh, And that's not just the fact that money is the root of all evil and money corrupts men. That's part of it, yes. But the biggest chunk of it is that the real value in life is not necessarily material things, but it's others that we know and love. And we see that through Cody and we see that through... uh, curtain as he goes to visit the wife and then you also see it through Howard as he kind of befriends this village that's just kind of there in the wilderness uh, and he kind of becomes their caretaker and I was like crap I didn't even consider that
0: yeah I think this movie does a fantastic job of showing these really interesting character arcs of all of these people completely down on their luck they're all homeless and broke they don't have any money to their name and what money they do have They just kind of seem to spend it on alcohol or throwing it away somehow, getting haircuts and whatnot. Anyways, so these people begin so poor and then they really do strike it rich, especially for the time. This takes place in 1925, $25,000 each in 1925 is great. They're going to live a nice, comfortable life, especially from where they were sleeping on park benches and uh, living this really scummy life. But I think it's really fascinating how it shows uh, how kind of this darkness of human nature and greed, essentially the fall of man, will just take over all. And we kind of get this Cain and Abel scenario here towards the end of how, uh, you know, there's just this big power struggle. And uh, we see uh, Dobbs as the dark side of humanity. Curtain is kind of the in-between side where he said yeah. like i could go this way and we do see him in the movie one time consider leaving dobbs for dead within the mine and considering you know I, I probably should just kill you to make things better but then we also see he goes back to um more of the sentimental side of wanting to care for other people and have compassion on them and just be a peach picker just a simple life and right. howard also is the same way he's like if i was a young man i would have been tempted to shoot you also probably and just take it all for myself but i've he's like learned so much in life and seen so much and gone through so many things he's like i just want to retire with a grocery store and read comic books and he doesn't really do that he still does retire but just kind of lives a nice life so i think this movie does a great job with those character
1: arcs oh yeah absolutely and i really like this that you gotta get to see humphrey bogart's character dobbs just he, to be fair, both Dobbs and Kern are really stupid here in this opening, and the movie does not shy away from showing that. Especially when they're walking up the mountain and they think that they found gold as it's shimmering on the rocks, and they're just like, "We found gold! We found gold!" After they were like essentially saying, especially Dobbs, who's saying that we might as well just give up; it's too hard, you know. Um, then they see gold, and they're like, they're getting all happy and stuff, and they're jumping up and down, and then Howard comes after him and just laughs and says, "This is fool's gold." Fool's gold. This is completely worthless. And they're just like, what? And they were just so confused. Uh, you really get this sense that these men, these two guys, Curtin and Dobbs, really don't know what they're doing. Uh, and luckily, they have a mentor there, uh, Howard, that kind of shows them how to do things. And that's how they kind of get their money. Uh, but it is just kind of funny here in this opening how uh, Dobbs really never comes out of this. He learns, never isn't exactly learn to get away from his, I guess, ignorance here, he kind of channels it into something much different, which in the end, he becomes very, very greedy and tries to run off with the money, which which we'll talk about what happens a bit later on. But we do get to see how Curtin, I guess you can kind of say, takes in Howard's, I guess, teachings in a different, much different way and kind of becomes smarter than what Dobbs was, I guess.
0: Uh, And I think between John Huston and Humphrey Bogart, between the writing and the acting, This, these like seeds of how Dobbs' character will eventually become are set up here in the first act really well Mm -hmm. because he's, uh, he is always the victim, it seems like. Um, no matter what is going on in life, it's because somebody else didn't give him a fair shake. And we do see him get taken advantage of, but that's because, well, it's kind of like you said, Dobbs and Curtin are just stupid and they do the work without getting any kind of compensation or contract up front. So they just basically work for free. But we do see Dobbs is like uh, prone to violence. He is also just really basic and everything like, wow, you know, I bet we can, uh, we'll find the gold really quick on the mountain and then we'll get rich and oh, but no, wait, I want to keep mining until we get at least $50,000 and he's quick to violence. We see him beat up that one McCormick guy just to get the money. Uh, anyway, so I think the setup for Dobbs' character is absolutely great. And then how he reacts and develops over, or the opposite of develops, he devolves over certain situations. It seems completely yeah. natural for his character.
1: Yeah, and I would even say that his really his entire character is kind of based off of hypocrisy. Because as you just kind of mentioned at the very beginning, he's like, oh, I'll just get so much money and that'll be fine. We'll get into it there. And then because he does hear that Howard is warning him about the Dangers of mining for gold, even with partners. Uh, and then one, once that situation comes up, he says, "How about we can we can go to twenty five thousand easy?" And there are a number of different con- inconsistencies with his character where he says one thing, and then when that thing comes up, he completely just tears it down and says something completely different. His character is really based off of a lot of hypocrisy uh, in this in the story for good reason because that's just kind of how human nature is. We do what's best for us. More or less, we do whatever we think we do, whatever we feel uh, it makes us better, and in our own in our own eyes. And so that kind of puts in the Hobbs, and we do get to see how he just kind of instead of where uh, instead of like uh, Curtin and Howard as they kind of progress, and I guess you could even say learn something uh, that's beneficial towards them. Uh, Dobbs does the complete opposite, as you were saying. He devolves and kind of becomes even more and more paranoid and mad as the movie goes along.
0: And Walter Houston's character, Howard, has a really great line here in the beginning. He says, as long as there's no find, meaning no gold to find, the brotherhood lasts. But when there is a find, right. that's when the trouble starts. So he right. claims he's been in these situations many times before. And you're thinking, oh, well, he's easily just a big talker, like somebody who's living, who's a homeless person and claims they've been rich many times before. That doesn't really sound believable, but he's like, well, I'm no exception to the rule. I've because of greed you think you're going to use all of your money to find more money and it's ruined me so uh immediately we're set up with um I would say it seems like we couldn't maybe trust Howard at first but I would say he's probably more trustworthy because he admits his mistakes and he admits like yeah I've done this wrong whereas Dobbs is like oh I'd be satisfied with just any gold I find and then right after Mm -hmm. that he says okay I'm going to dream of piles of gold So he makes a statement about not being greedy, and then he makes a statement about being greedy. It's like you said, that contradiction. And uh, I got to say, between Howard and Dobbs' character, it's a hard time picking, which I think is like my favorite character, which is a better character because they're both so brilliant. But Walter Houston does such an amazing job as Howard.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I'm kind of with you there at the beginning, too, where I myself am just like – I don't know if I can trust Howard. Is he in my notes? I even have I even said I saw him guessing the old man is going to run off with the cash and just outsmart the other two men. That's kind of what I was thinking was going to end up happening, which doesn't happen. Uh, And and in, in any sense, Dobbs is the one who tries to run away with the money, but never really outsmarts anybody. Uh, and so, yeah, it's kind of this interesting picture too, because you have men, two guys who are kind of the same age, Dobbs and Curtin, but then you've also got Howard, who's much older than they are, that he's uh, pretty close to getting, he's getting up there in, in in years. And so it also kind of has this little lesson of, it doesn't matter who, who you are, how old you are, you can still learn, uh, you can even go to show that there's still precious things to learn in life, which is especially shown through Howard.
0: Uh, One of the things that I kind of had an issue with here in the beginning, but I think it does actually serve the story the more I think about it, is it did feel a little too convenient that Dobbs, they need money. They need at least $600 each to go on their mining expedition, but they don't have that kind of money. Well, it just so happened Dobbs had bought a lottery ticket from a kid. He just so happens to win the lottery having that money. Which is like oh hey now the you know the movie can continue and we get to go on expedition at first I thought oh that's pretty convenient but I think it goes to show you that anybody who would win the lottery you would think would just be grateful for doing so but and he said there right I, I just quoted the line he's like you know what if I found this much I'd be satisfied well he just won the lottery. And now he's just hungry and eager to go get more money. He's like, oh, wow, cool, I won. Who cares? I, I just want to go get more money. So in that way, I think it does serve the story well to, sh- to show his character's disposition like that.
1: And I would even say that it kind of goes into talking about gold itself. Uh, I have written my notes here that gold is kind of equivalent to winning the lottery uh, or it'd maybe just the lottery in general. You have to be extremely lucky to find a place where gold is at. And then once you get that, the revenue you get from mining that gold can kind of drive you mad, kind of a similar way to how we hear a lot of stories about who people who win the lottery, they think that they'll be that they're going to be very happy. And then when they do get all that money, they totally are not and their lives are more or less just demolished because of their because the money that they have. Uh, I I just learned about this in uh, in psychology, that uh, we tend to I forget the technical term for it. But we tend to Overemphasize a lot of things, and so when we think that there is potential gain for a lot, for like maybe the lottery or something like that, we tend to overemphasize what we think would happen. We don't know how we don't we can't necessarily predict correctly what's going to happen. And so when that happens, when then we lose all that money, uh, then you have a then of course we're really we kind of go into somewhat of a depression or even go a bit mad because once again this is also something I learned from that class is that loss is much more impactful than gaining something.
0: Oh, yeah, that's fascinating, so, I, I haven't really given much thought to that, but I'm sure it is because, I don't know, I think as fallen humanity, we're geared towards just wanting more, mm-hmm. you know, that's why, you know, it says in scripture that it's very hard for a rich man to enter heaven. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, which would be impossible, you know, right. and I think that movie kind of uh, speaks to that as well. One of the more kind of funnier things I want to mention, did you notice in when they're having the bar fight between McCormick and Dobbs and Curtain that it's not the actor McCormick, it's obviously a stunt double that's fighting? It's so obvious.
1: I kind of wondered if it was a stunt double, uh, but I guess I didn't necessarily look look too deep into it, but I guess that doesn't surprise me because I did know something different.
0: I've just noticed because I've been watching a lot of older movies recently and even some yep. of the older James Bond, they have no idea how to hide a stunt double, even an old Charlton Heston movie. It's like, wow, that they don't they like almost don't even have the same like weight to them, They're like completely right. different weights and sizes. And today they're so great at making the same actor and stunt double look like the same. But in this, I listeners go back and watch this fight scene and pay attention to McCormick, because for the wide shots, he loses like 20 pounds And then for the close-up shots, it's like, oh, okay, that's clearly his face.
1: And speaking of this scene, too, it is kind of fascinating how far we've come in action scenes in our more recent day and age, because (laughs) uh, compared to newer movies, this is a relatively tame action scene, I guess you could say. For the time, of course, it was very influential, uh, and and still, even now, at least it serves a great purpose. But it, it is... Kind of showing its age here. And, but it is interesting, though, that I would like to point out. You kind of brought this up briefly. But there are a lot of wide shots to this little little skirmish in the bar. You don't normally see that with more recent modern movies. We tend to be very, very close in, in the actresses' faces that are having a little fight. With this one, it's rather wide for the most part. It's it's all wide shots, and it shows you a lot of, of stuff that you normally wouldn't see because it's usually moving around quite a bit in more modern movies. Just kind of to bring that up.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's shot really well. It's kind of shot yeah. actually from the floor up, which is kind of cool. And uh, when we do get later on into the movie, there are you know some decent wide shots of the landscape. Uh, one of my favorites right. is when uh, the bandits are coming up the mountain when they first see that all I'll wait to talk about that scene, but that's one of my favorite parts of the movie. It's, I'll wait. I want to talk about it, but I'll wait. Uh, But anyways, I, you know, like we were saying how the action is, yeah, back then action was fairly cheesy. The punches sounded fake. When people got shot, there's like no blood. And it it was just extremely tame. Whereas now today it's, oh my gosh, it's, you know, probably not necessarily hyper violent where some of it is but i would just say realistic where we're shocked but it's like that's right. probably really what happens when you shoot somebody or when you do that but i do think for the time and even today this movie is fairly violent um probably from beginning to end because we see that and i think that is going uh that's like speaking to how Uh, kind of the base nature of humanity how even from the beginning even in the civilized world of Tampico people are using violence to get money from other people despite it being 1925 and uh, that's probably because it's post-world war one but at the time of shooting it's post-world war two so it's a much different world um, where the world is not as probably sane as people think it used to be because of this horrors of mass destruction and war. Right. And uh, I do think that's really interesting though, how the violence is always used for just like just like really petty things. It's not like, oh my gosh, you shot my brother or you are you know coming after me personally. It's like, no, you owe me money or I want more of your gold dust than you. I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to bash over the head with a rock. You know, I'm just going to beat you up or in the end, it's really violent. We don't see it. Um, But I do think there is something to be said about how they don't show the violence, how that could be even more effective where he just, before you know it, chops him with a machete three times uh, just without even giving it a second thought. Uh, It's interesting.
1: Right. And I did see that the reason why they didn't exactly show that is, they were originally going to have Humpy Brokart's head being chopped off and then show it rolling on the ground into the little pool that was there in the oh, location. Wow. Really, Hayes's code was like, uh, "No, <laughs> you, you can't, you can't do that." Um, so they chopped it out, and even then, I think the the director uh, Houston was just like, eh, "It still works, though." Yeah,
0: I think that probably would have been a bit overkill and almost would have made it a little cheesy. I think I I thought it was just as impactful without seeing his head roll into. <laughs> The muddy pool, <laughs>
1: right, right. I, I, he's. I think he did mention that. It's, it kind of still gets the same message across. Maybe was home. Maybe it was mm. Bogart himself. uh Either way, yeah. Even for the time, that's just like that's. I mean, for the move, for the time the movie came out back in forty eight, that would have been really overly violent uh compared to anything else. No wonder it didn't pass the Hades Code. Yeah, uh,
0: I will say this. Dory is, like at least the plot, like the story beats, is much simpler than the previous two Bogart movies we've reviewed.
1: Yeah, and to be fair, uh, these from uh, Maltese Falcon, that one was much more of a police investigation. Uh, So that one, those are typically just naturally more complex. Uh, And then this one, yeah, this one definitely has a very straightforward story to it which does make a lot of sense because you're just kind of, you're not really going back in time or anything like that. You're usually staying along the same track. And everything that happens from here is going to expand upon it a bit later. So, yeah.
0: I'll say this so far is probably the most accessible Bogart film we've reviewed because the Maltese Falcon, you can hear our review and thoughts on those movies, but those movies are so complex, like you really need to pay attention or else you're going to be lost who and why and what is going on. This movie is very straightforward, I would say, with its plot and premise, but it does get to fairly deep issues about the nature of humanity.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, more so than both the movies, like I think you just mentioned this uh, earlier before that. Uh, both these movies, before Casablanca and Maltese Falcon, uh, they do take a bit more thought, I guess you could say, to really dive in and figure out what it's trying to say. This one you can kind of, you can more or less get what it's saying on like a first, maybe even second viewing. Uh, it's pretty forward with what it's trying to say, not that, that it's a detriment or anything, because I think it still really works the way that it tells its story. Uh, but it is like you like you were saying, it is a bit more accessible, a bit more easier to understand than those on th- those two on a first viewing.
0: One of the issues I had with um probably the sound design of this movie i don't i guess you could call it that back then is when they're trekking through the mexican wilderness or even kind of the mexican jungle with some of it they use the same noises they do in like the amazon jungle movies uh if you watch like king kong the 1933 king kong or just creature from the black lagoon it's the same noises Mm -hmm. they think all jungles sound alike and maybe that's maybe people back then wouldn't have known the difference i guess now since we have youtube and animal planet we know they don't sound like that because they have different animals and stuff but to me that just i just thought it was funny and that took me out of it just a little bit when i hear these like i'm like wait i've heard that in the amazon jungle and creature from black lagoon
1: Right, I would say one of my small issues with this is not really here, but kind of before these scenes. Uh, getting to this point in the movie, it's kind of choppy. Uh, now to be fair, everything that they show is very relevant to the movie because it goes to build and introduce, uh, Curtin and show that the gate. These kind of going to foreshadow what's going to happen later on in the movie when they, uh, find out when they find McCormick. But for kind of especially when they get into working with McCormick, it's just kind of feels a bit choppy. It's not really that big of a deal, but it's something that I did notice when I was watching it. Uh, Once again, relevant, but still there.
0: Yeah, I think their journey getting there is, it feels really long and it's really arduous, which kind of confuses me because later on when Curtin has to go into the village, it makes it seem like he is able to go from their campsite to the village within just a few hours, within the same day. But we know it took them many days to get up there and then it takes them a really long time. I don't know, probably at least like four days to get from their campsite to back down the village because we see multiple nights occur. So kind of the time frame of getting to different places is uh, when they want it to feel more longer than it does. But then when like, hey, he needs to get to the village right away, then he's there.
1: Right. I mean, yeah, for the most part, for me, uh, I saw it, but I'm just like, eh, it's not that big of a deal because it does still get the point across. And even in those scenes, uh, really, after like the first 20 minutes or so, it's pretty much fine up until those scenes when uh, the timeline kind of gets a bit skewed where you don't really know where we're at or how that person got to that place. Yeah, either way, it still does a very good job at... uh, Letting you, allowing you to see the progression, at least, of, the, of all of these characters as they kind of get more money and how they all react to it. I
0: did conclude that the movie begins in February and ends in July, so it takes place over about five months.
1: Okay. I think they mentioned how long it took there towards the mm-hmm. end as well.
0: Um, I did find one of the lines to be funny and also, of course, kind of a ironic foreshadowing. Because when they start suggesting, hey, we should probably split this up and each person be responsible for their own gold. And then Howard's like, yeah, sure. You all start hiding it and get really paranoid and suspicious of each other. And then Dobbsy uh, says to Howard, he says, what a dirty, filthy mind you have. (laughs) I thought that was so funny. And it comes to find out that's what he does.
1: Right. And also as well, we see... uh Dobbs himself kind of gets a bit paranoid when they get close to his money. After uh, it's a, it was some kind of monster. Yeah, Look it was, it up it was the, the Gila monster. Down, that's it. Yeah, the Gila monster. When the Gila monster crawls under this rock, which is where Dobbs's money is, at, he immediately goes like gets really tense about it, and it's blaming Curtin for trying to steal his money and all kinds of stuff like that. When in reality, he was just trying to get the Gila monster and shoot it that way. It wasn't It wouldn't bother them. Uh, but it just, yeah, kind of just goes to show once again, that hypocrisy in his character.
0: Yeah. And Dobbs is almost, he's like, it's almost worth sticking my hand in there to get bit because he's so paranoid that he's wrong and they're right. And they're like, okay, if you do that, you will most likely die. And ultimately he gives up. And we see many times throughout this movie where Dobbs should have died either from the mind collapsing in on him, getting Mm -hmm. bit. I think um, Curtin probably should have shot him, but then that probably would have, because Curtin doesn't die, then that would have been a big moral dilemma and we would have probably, at least the audience at the time, would have turned against Curtin and would have probably messed up the heroism and how everybody views the characters of the movie. But for that mind cave-in, this is really the only time I have an issue with the score it's when Curtin almost leaves him to die, but then when he makes the choice to go in there and drag him out, this really triumphal percussion when he saves them. That just, to me, sounds so rote for how old scores sound in general. I think there's not a lot of differentiation between them at times. Not like today's scores, how they just sound so unique and different. Um, We've talked about this before, but that was probably my big issue with the score. There's a a few other times with the score where I think it's actually really brilliant, but I don't know. What did you think of this score part?
1: Yeah. And see, that's kind of the thing just kind of in general with the score is that I didn't ever really notice it. I mean, it's I knew it was there, but I never really paid it much mind. I think partly due to the fact that I never really found anything to be that spectacular. Uh, what I did hear and what I do remember, it sounded good, but for the most part, it's not like I really remembered too much. Uh, Or we took note of many of the times when it was used.
0: I'm really satisfied with one of these next scenes where Curtin tells of his time as a kid, as a peach picker one summer and how he just uh, loved that so much. And he has like such fond memories of that. And I think that captures the essence of childhood nostalgia really well, but I think it also goes to show just the desire for a simple life is despite having all of this money and wanting to, you know, be well off and take care of yourself. They still want those uh, more simpler things in life. And I think it helps develop Curtin's character a bit more because I've felt throughout the movie that Dobbs and Howard are getting the spotlight and their characters are like getting more attention and more like depth with the writing. Whereas Curtin is just kind of this almost like secondary character in a way, but I do think this kind of helps bolster his, uh, persona.
1: Yeah. And in the scene too, we do find out that, uh, Dar, Dar, Darb, Dobbs is, uh, Dobbs's dream of what he's going to do with his money is much different than Howard and Kurtz, because in this, he talks about how he's going to kind of like, he's going to live in luxury and do all of these kinds of things. And even goes on to say but later after this is that $25,000 is small potatoes. Uh, and you get this sense, which we has kind of been leading up to this point, that Dobbs... Uh, He's really only caring about the money, and whereas, where, whereas with Kurt and Howard, they're taking that and they're going to do something that kind of gives them, I guess, more life uh, or makes them live life in a much different way. Something that they love to do, which for Dot, with for which for Kurt is to live on a peach farm, a very simple life. But for him, that's something that he just really wants to do, as something that he has been aspiring to do his entire life up until this point. And kind of the same with Howard is a bit different one, wanting to get a grocery store and settle down and stuff. It's very interesting how uh, Dobbs. I guess you could say he doesn't really even know what he wants to do other than the fact that now he has this money. Uh, he doesn't really know w- really what he could do with it. Maybe because he's just so infatuated with it that it's just kind of been coming or it's becoming to overtake his mind instead of doing what he loves to do is just doing what ever makes him happy with this money, whatever that may be.
0: Well, right after this is when Dobbs tells Curtin, you owe me you know, $600 for helping you go on this expedition with us, which I think saving his life from the mine disaster should have made them even, but regardless, he gives him, he's like, well, here is your share plus interest. And this is a really important scene because Dobbs throws the gold into the fire and we can contrast that. Well, I guess I should say more so compare it actually with the scenes towards the end where he is so covetous of the gold and he doesn't want to get rid of it. And, in fact, he actually wants more. And then when the banditos come and uh, kill him and steal his gold, they also throw it away into the wind, which kind of shows they're really just one and the same people. And I think this scene goes to show that the gold really means nothing to Dobbs because he's like, I'm basically just going to use it on I'm going to blow it on superficial items and get put off a really successful, powerful impression on everybody who sees me walking around in my zoot suit. And I think this is what Dobbs is doing here, is he's just showing the idea of maintaining and attaining this superficial power.
1: Yeah, yeah. And even then, Dobbs has been shown up until this point, and even especially there towards the end, that he doesn't really have much regard for human life especially there towards the end because he kind of puts himself in danger and then ends up dying because of the money that he's trying to protect. Uh, this kind of goes along with the uh, the uh, Ela monster there at the beginning, uh, towards the beginning, and then here, of course, at the very end when the bandits come in and- they come and raid him essentially, and then end up killing him, and then drop his money. And to them, they—if had they known what it was—they also could have been very, very rich. But they don't really care, and they think that it's just sand, so they throw it away. And it's, it also kind of gives this image: as you see the gold on the ground blowing away into the wind, as if it, it doesn't really matter. Gold is—it's a material thing, anyways. So what's really the point of it in the long, in the grand scheme of things?
0: There's a line I really like that Tower says to. Dobbs, he says something up your nose, blow it out. It'll do you good. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty funny and creative. And I do think Howard's character and John Houston wrote this character of Howard specifically for his dad. His dad said, when you go off to Hollywood and you become, you know, Mr. Successful Movie Director. He said, I want you to write a role for me that I could really sink my teeth into and have a lot of fun with. So John Huston wrote this role specifically for his dad. And uh, I think that's also what makes the character so great and so special is because he knows his dad and he knows how well his dad can embody the role.
1: Yeah. And he, you can definitely see some like fatherly figure out of Howard and how he acts and how he interacts with these two, with these two guys. In this story, too. Absolutely.
0: Now, the movie gets... I think the movie gets really interesting, and I think this is what the movie really needed, and it's the introduction of Cody. Yes. Uh, It's really interesting because, once again, we're called to question ourselves uh, how trustworthy would we be in a situation like this? Because it's really easy to judge them up there and be like, dang, they're so untrustworthy, um Dobbs is really taking it too far and they're really paranoid but then when you come to realize it and think about it you're like wait a minute they've got something really good going on here it could be completely ruined if they bring somebody else into it and I think we've always we've all been there in some situation in our lives whether it's a group of friends or something we've got going on where a fourth member or somebody comes in and it's like what are you doing here you know we you're you're not a part of a group you're not a part of a clique Get out of here. And uh, I think Cody is a really great addition to this gang. And although his part is brief, I think this is probably one of my favorite segments of the movie.
1: Yeah. And when I first when we were first introduced to Cody, I was like, oh. Okay, another character. At This point in the movie, why would we do this? Are we really going to add another character? I was thinking that it was that they were bringing in Cody just to cause some kind of conflict, which ends up not really being true at all. It's meant to show we got. It begins this idea that the real value in life is something much more than just money, and that begins with Cody, even though he himself is also up there looking for gold, uh, in, in trying to help out, or trying to get in with some guy with this guy uh kurt and hopefully also trying to find some gold himself uh he they try and brush brush it off as oh we're just some humble hunters but then he quickly calls him out and says there's not much game up here uh and they're like oh i didn't notice so it is it is quite interesting how his character once again i've suit the, the i guess what i've been used to seeing uh is what i think is going to happen and then totally doesn't there towards the end and one of those things where i'm just like wow crap that's a better way of doing it than i what i would have thought
0: yeah cody is a smart character and he's really not there to mess things up for them he said i'll help you guys and i'll only take what you know i work for i'm not going to ask for an entire share of it and that seems completely reasonable and what is Mm. very unreasonable and really insane when you think about it is They are all willing to murder him just to keep their gold a secret. So they really all have this dark moment here, despite where Howard and Curtin end up because they take a vote and, and Dobbs is like, you're not opposed to killing. Are you Dobbs wants to kill anybody, any chance he can get in this movie. And I mean, right before they even started digging, he says to Howard, I'll bash your head in with this rock and um, even Curtin. It's shocking says, yeah, I'll uh, kill him. And I think this movie does a great job of kind of showing how there's these um, kind of belated consequences to their actions. So Curtin is willing to kill Cody and Cody dies. And then later on, Curtin is shot as well. And uh, Dobbs also wants to kill him, too. And later on, Dobbs is killed as well. So I think this it does a great job of kind of showing these like consequences to actions. Even if you don't necessarily do those things yourself, regardless, you are going to do that to somebody else and now it's coming back upon you. And I think it's I think the scene works so well because they're willing to murder Cody and then the bandits come. So it's kind of like this has been revisited upon them tenfold because now they have an even bigger problem to deal with that will most likely kill them in the end.
1: Right, and this this also got, goes to the thing that I think I found to be the most fascinating is that this movie does a really good job at like it, bringing in an idea and then expressing it, and then taking very little time before it begins adding on and exploring this idea. And so this is a great example. of This Cody, when he's introduced, uh, we and then he dies. He we get this idea that you know life, of course, is better, is more, is more valuable than just money. And so, yeah, I was like, okay, yeah, it makes sense. But then it begins very quickly to begin to start expanding and exploring this idea. And not long after that, uh, we are they're already talking about how they're going to go to Dallas and visit the wife because it's the right thing to do. And then not long after that, after, they, after they're walking down the mountain, Howard is brought to, or no, before this, Howard goes to this village and helps this little kid and then ends up staying in the village a bit later on. Uh, this movie does a really good job at expressing an idea and then taking very, very little time before it Actually starts adding on and exploring this idea instead of playing foreshadowing games. Although it does still do that with some of the some of the ideas here. The one, some of the big ones, it just wastes no time and expressing this idea, showing you where it's going to be, and then adding on to it.
0: So it sounds like you were surprised when Cody died. You weren't expecting that.
1: Yeah, no, I was expecting them to actually shoot him and have him kind of play a very minor role and just kind of goes just kind of going to show that they're just all kind of going mad. But that's not really what happens. It's the bandits that shoot Cody. They had no, they really had nothing to do with it, uh, his death. But it's the it's the what happens because of his death. What they find in his like in his personal documents that really affects the characters and really pushes this idea.
0: A few films, like more modern films that have, you know, been very prestigious with the awards they've won and like in the cultural zeitgeist, that kind of make me think of this movie, and undoubtedly have been drawn upon from this movie are no country for old men and there will be blood Absolutely. and Absolutely. i kind of think of uh josh brolin's character and no country for old men a bit like cody's character here and I'm, I'm not trying to spoil no country for old men but it's kind of hard not to talking about this scene but Cody is regardless a small character, but he is still central to the plot and how it shapes the rest of their lives and how everything will turn out. And Josh Brolin is the exact same way, but with the way he goes out in No Country for Old Men, it's really shocking because first of all, it's off screen, which threw everybody off. And then you kind of come to realize that he's actually not really the main character, just kind of the main driving force behind the plot. And um, the other thing with No Country for Old Men, I love both of those movies, No Country for Old Men begins with Daniel Day-Lewis mining for gold in the beginning, and then eventually he becomes so greedy with uh, mining for oil that he uh, pretty much just, like, loses everything. And also, theres remember when he becomes so paranoid because he believes that guy is not his brother, and he also believes that guy is just there to, like, take whatever he wants— and uh, he murders him. That reminds me so much, like Daniel day Lewis's character of being crazy reminds me so much of how Dobbs is completely insane. Especially the scene where he makes him dig his grave and it's at the fire at night and he shoots him just like he shoots right. Curtin. I'm like, okay, I know Paul Anderson saw this movie and drew some inspiration and the Coen brothers saw this as well.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure... That that's exactly what happened because it, it makes no it's no surprise to me the parallels that are between these three movies because in some sense they are all rather similar. Uh, they are all dealing with this idea of greed, uh, but clearly they're pulling some inspiration off of this movie, those two movies are.
0: And of course we can't go by without uh, the super famous line. Of course. That is misquoted.
1: It is. I, I noticed this because, okay... Uh, We've all, we both see new HF yeah. and that's where it, it kind of, I guess, maybe even helped popularize this quote um, a little bit, but even that got it wrong as well. It's not badges, badges, we don't need know stinking badges. It's a bit more than that.
0: Yeah, it is. I didn't write down the full line, but the part that people misquote is um, the real line is badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. Mm-hmm. I, I've heard that line a bunch it- and this is where it comes from.
1: Right, right. I think I—I I don't know if I have the whole quote down, but I have—I have written down badges. We have no badges. We have—we don't have—we don't have to show you no stinking badges. Yeah.
0: That's a great line, and I gotta say, uh, that character is so great. I—I I wrote down his name. Uh, he plays the character of Gold Hat, and that character who plays Gold Hat is so great in this scene. He's played by Alfonso Bedoya, who is a Mexican actor. And when they came down to Mexico, John Houston saw him and he's like you're perfect for this role and he cast him in the movie and uh the other thing i forgot to mention was you know cody comes late into the movie well he was actually cast late into the production of this movie which is just an interesting aside but uh alfonso yep. bedoya as gold he's such an iconic character he's so creative he's got his like hat strap like over his mouth and uh yep. I just, I love his character. He's such a great addition to this movie.
1: Yeah, he absolutely is. And I love how uh, he is essentially what Dobbs is, F- Bob's is, Dobbs is essentially going to become there towards the end, uh, where essentially da- the bandits really are just trying to get their hands on really anything that they can. Uh, and then with... Uh, it's kind of the same thing with Dobbs' character. They're, they run, kind of run in parallel almost, and Dobbs comes closer to becoming what Golden Hat is. And he, of course, Golden Hat becomes uh, a recurring idea or a recurring character as the movie story moves along. Uh, we do get a scene in the very opening with the train robbery, and the three men defend against the train, and you get a brief glimpse of him. And then he comes back a couple more times as the movie goes along as well. Uh, and then at the very end, he has to dig his own grave and he's shot by the firing squad uh, by the Federales.
0: And isn't it funny when before they shoot him, he's like, can I put, can I wear my sombrero?
1: Yep. Shot. yep.
0: That's a great part. It's a great little addition. But, mm-hmm. um, oh, I, I did forget to mention that the shot of the banditos coming up the mountain I have yes. found this to actually be ever since I saw the movie genuinely I have found this to be one of the most frightening scenes in that I've seen in movie history because it just seemed like such a tranquil setting up there in the wilderness and then to see right. such violence visited upon it by not only these three men who come and you know mess up the land and just just get all greedy and start murdering each other for just silly reasons, but then just this shot of these bandits coming up there. They seem so small, but they're coming up towards them and just kind of this impending fear, just kind of this doom where it's like, there's no way you're going to escape. They're, they're going to come up here and kill you and you're going to die. It's such a great scene. And one I would probably compare to in no country for old men towards the beginning when Josh Brolin is running from those people in the dark and they're, they're in their trucks and they're coming after him and it's so dark, but this, the shot is so great.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it even kind of runs in parallel with what the men, our three main characters, are doing here on the mountain. Uh, and they're kind of coming to see what was going on up here. And we, there's this line later on that's kind of interesting from Howard. He says, now we're going to have to more or less try and fix what we did to this mountain because we've raped her for all of our, all of our, uh, all of our resources. And uh, Dobbs's character is like... Okay, sure. And he just kind of brushes it off, and of course it kind of plays into his own, his representation of the character. But I found it to be just a very interesting line, like you were saying. It's it's a very tranquil place, and both these characters and the bandits are coming up, and they're just destroying it, more or less.
0: Yeah, and the scene where they read the letter from Cody's wife, um, Mm -hmm. it uh, really introduces some great humanity to these characters who seriously lack compassion. And this Guy, you come to find out they don't know a thing about him and neither do we. And, of course, they're apprehensive. And I should mention, I think it's a great shot when they said, "What great scene when they said, how do you know that he was following you up the mountain? And he said, because he's here now. And they just look up and it cuts to him standing over there in the shadows before he walks over to the campfire. Great shot. And uh, you come to find out he's a great guy. He has a wife and a son. And he came down there to provide for his family they're ready to murder him, and uh, yeah, I think it brings that message into the movie without being heavy-handed, because we've seen right. such kind of this depravity of these people just you know, murdering each other for this little earth mineral, and then we come to find this guy who actually has these pure motives, who set out to do this for his family. I think that's a great scene in the movie.
1: Right, and it really is long after this, too, uh, that the men from the village come up, and they want to take how and once they want somebody to help out cuz they have a kid that's dying again i guess yeah he dr- he fell into a lake and almost drowned and so howard goes to help him and this is probably my f- probably my favorite scene in this whole movie and it's just with no words and it's just kind of all music and it shows howard essentially helping treating to this kid who's who is about to die and you don't know if the kid's going to live. He's, I mean, you there, you do kind of see him breathing, but that's not really the whole point of the scene. Um, but you get to see Howard help this village out. And because of that, the, the village is very, very grateful for that. And it's just, it's probably my favorite scene in this whole movie because it's, for one, it's very different from the rest of what we're seeing. It's very peaceful, but at the same time, very, very suspense-filled because you don't know if this kid's going to live or not. But at the same time, it really hammers in this idea of how precious... Uh, and then what the real value of life is and how precious life is and things like that. It's this go- really, really gorgeous scene, in my own opinion, that I found to be one of those, probably the most impactful scene of this whole movie and really the whole uh, narrative here.
0: Oh, yes, I agree. At first, I thought it seemed to be detracting from the story. It seemed to be an odd choice because they're going down the mountain and, no oh, way we're going to spend all this time with him helping the kid. But then I gave it some more thought, and I thought, well, this is actually important because – It shows these people who have lived on this land for who knows how long. They have no care for gold. They could have went and got out the gold anyway, but they have no use for it. I mean, it would only bring them just, uh, you know, finite material possessions that they don't care for. But whereas uh, they care more so for human life, for uh, no amount of gold can't bring this child back. So whereas these three Americans come to the land that isn't theirs and they just do it to get rich and they don't care for human life. So I think the juxtaposition between we, you know, we don't really care about this gold. We care more so about this young child is far more important. Yeah, it is. It's juxtaposed really well.
1: And it also kind of goes to show, it is also kind of a foreshadowing element there towards the end when Howard returns to this village. But it is also interesting too, because Howard essentially returns to the way that we first found him with no gold and really no money. He lives in this village by his own merit with no money at all, because to this village, gold is, like you said, basically worthless. They have really no need to keep it, because for one, they're kind of excommunicated from the rest of society. But at the same time, what are they going to do with it? it? I mean, yeah, it's here and it's all over the place, but to what purpose does it serve them? So I really like this I, this image that Howard returns right back to the way that he started, which he even expressed that there is a very big danger to searching for gold there at the very beginning when he is talking with Dobbs and Curtin.
0: And once again, I, I would also say there's even more juxtaposition um, where Howard is kind of living in this kind of Garden of Eden, area where yeah. they're just living in peace and it's really nice but then not very far you could say east of eden we've got cain and abel pretty much we've got one good one bad Dobbs and curtain um you know preparing to kill each other essentially right so we've got that tranquility and paradise going on and it's you see life without gold is much easier and simpler and um so i would say probably some of that anti-capitalist rhetoric has been toned down for the movie. I think more so they're not trying to um, speak against an economic system, but mm-hmm. more so speak against materialism, which I'm completely okay with, or consumerism, whatever you want to call it. And yeah. I, I think there is a great uh, view of that here.
1: Yeah, this definitely isn't something that's trying to rip apart uh, capitalism and saying that it's a total evil and all, all that kind of stuff. It's definitely saying that there is a real danger to uh, to living with this kind of a lifestyle where money is all that you care about because if money is all you do care about, then your humanity is essentially lost at that point. Yeah, it, it definitely isn't. I mean, I guess the novel, it sounds like it kind of took this and really pushed it. Uh, But the movie wasn't really... It's hard to say. Had I not known the foreknowledge of the novel, it's hard to say that this this movie is terribly anti-capitalism. Not really.
0: Oh, yeah. No, absolutely not. I I wouldn't say it was. But I will say this third act, probably the end of the second act and this third act here, is probably my favorite sections of the movie because so much happens. And it's Mm -hmm. uh, it's so thick, but it's also so interesting. Um, And this is where I think bogart's performing his paranoid performance it's been building and building and i've been loving it the whole time but i think this is kind of the uh, third act here is where it really shines yeah. where he goes full paranoid nutcase and you see him just like rocking himself and i love how wide he makes his eyes and you can see the white of his eyes and his hair sticking up and he's rocking himself and um mm-hmm. i gotta say bogart ceases to amaze me with his performances
1: Oh yeah, and I I know that in the opening when we were talking when you were talking about how all the critics and how they were claiming it, uh, you said this is probably their f- best performance they would seen from Bogart. I'm gonna have to second that. I think that this, as far as I'm as far as I've seen, this may be my favorite uh, favorite acting job from Bogart. And I think that's just due to the fact that his character is so dynamic because he goes, his emotions in acting style remo- are moved all around the board here. Whereas in the previous films, not to say he wasn't good because he was definitely really great in those movies, but they're more or less monotone. They don't, the acting style there doesn't really move about as much or it's not as dynamic. This, is, this feels really dynamic for his character compared to what we've had before. And I think that, yeah, this might be for me, my favorite acting from Bogart himself.
0: Plus, I love how they, uh, the settings that they're in, um, they just seem to grow more sinister, how mm-hmm. the fire rises, and everything yeah. is just so shadowy and dense, and uh, even the trees look so barren and scraggly, and it just becomes kind of a much more uh, desolate setting, oh, it, yeah. it would seem, where they're just really far from civilization, and even when he does get to the watering hole... I think that's a brilliant scene where he's basically become an animal. Uh, He's drinking out of the watering hole with the animals. Um, I I wanted to ask, were you shocked that Curtin is supposedly shot dead?
1: I was a little bit. And the movie does kind of explain that it's really, really dark out there. So it was more or less the reason why Dobbs missed or maybe didn't shoot to kill or right. maybe he did shoot, he intended to shoot to kill but then didn't do so i was a bit surprised though that Curtin still was alive there towards the end of course he was hardly living yeah. but yeah i was a bit surprised that uh that he still lived after that
0: yeah i remember the first time i saw it i was first of all shocked that he did you think he murders Curtin. and i'm like no right. way that's that is shocking And then come to find out Curtin's not alive, which I think is great when Dobbs comes back. Well, first of all, he's debating whether to even go look at him because he's like, what if his eyes are open looking at me? And then he's gone. And uh, and he tries to explain it away like, oh, a tiger got him. And he was afraid the buzzards would give him away as if no creature out there would die. And it's just complete paranoia. And he plays it off so well. And then when he finally... When he finally settles it in his mind, he's like, oh, it's just like, you know, um, destiny wanted it this way. Like my power is so great. I just it worked out perfectly for me that he a a tiger carried him off and he gives this maniacal laugh. Oh, it's so perfect.
1: Yeah, he's, com- he's become a complete narcissist at this point. His mm, yes. his The greed that's basically overtaken him at, up, because now everyone's out of the picture. It's just him and the money. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he is, the narcissism is just completely overtaken his mind. And all he really cares about is himself. And he's paranoid that he's going to be found. But oh, it's okay. The tiger took him off. No buzzers are going to come around. Yeah, it's quite an exquisite performance from Bogart here too.
0: Oh, it really is. And I will say I did notice the score was much better here in these scenes. Uh, there's a scene where Bogart is lying by the fire and like the fire is rising and you hear these like some really sinister strings here in the background. And then when he does laugh and walks off the scores, th- this is where the score shines for me and uh, does a better job, I would say, of kind of playing more so into connecting with what we're seeing there on screen. Yeah.
1: yeah. And yeah, I really do love this image as he's laying sideways, staring with his eyes are super wide into this fire as the fire continues to rise at this point it's pretty clear that he's kind of reached uh he's really he can't go back at this point he's gone so far into madness that he's not really going to head back anytime soon which he really doesn't when the movie ends he dies before he really has a chance uh to fix what he started like he ever even would have i guess would have really wanted to
0: and i think it's great once he gets to the watering hole he encounters the bandits and he's like i've got a gun and they're like so what with your gun we'll take the chance we have nothing to lose you know we were being hunted constantly all the time. And I think that's fascinating because now it's just kind of like the animals fight it out amongst each other. And, Mm -hmm. uh, Dobbs tries to, you know, smooth talk his way out of it and say, well, I'll pay you if you go along here with me. But it's great to see how he goes from this really narcissistic, power hungry murderer to, uh, pleading for his life. And it, uh, has that great concept of you reap what you sow. And it comes back upon him so quickly. And I think the movie does a great job of doing that in general, where I already mentioned this before. uh, Nobody escapes unscathed in this movie. Some kind of consequences occur and more drastic than others. But how do you react? How do you deal with such a thing? It shows the dark side of humanity reacts in a very violent way. And then violence is visited upon them. Whereas you could laugh it off and just kind of quote the psalmist, you know, or Ecclesiastes and say like, you know, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. You know, it's just ultimately pointless in the end to strive after such vain things. And then they go on to have what would we would seem a peaceful life.
1: Right. And even kind of adding on to that, we get a line from Howard pretty early on when they first meet him when he says, water is sometimes more precious than gold. And then that line comes right back here in this in this scene with, with Dobbs as he's pleading for his life. Or at first, he, we see him dive into the watering hole trying to get some water uh, right next to the animals. And then... Yeah, the uh the bandits show up and then they he essentially is brought down brought to his knees and pleading for his life. Once again, the water is sometimes more precious than gold at this point. He's pleading for life, which water is always very reminiscent of uh of giving life. But the water here I found to be very, very dirty. It's all is very brown, which is I found to be very, very interesting uh when he's trying to drink from it, and then not long after that he's pleading for his life and then is killed by the man in the golden hat by a machete, which is very interesting because it's not by a gun. Uh, which they have been shown to have guns it's more guerri- it's more of a more of a messy kind of killing he does it with a machete
0: yeah literally if you live by the sword you will die by the sword yeah. i also i can't believe bogar stuck his head in that water i know it looks like he drank from it i
1: know it, i can't believe he didn't get sick yeah it, it's very much showing that he is insanely desperate to, for water <laughs> at this point
0: yeah oh it's bad yeah uh and I do really like Howard's line that's when he starts laughing and he says the gold has returned from where it came. Yep. And I think that's such an amazing idea of how hard they strived. And honestly, it's kind of like uh, the game. What is that game? Not Jeopardy. It's like, who wants to be a millionaire or something right. or any of those game shows, I guess, where you get all that money and then it's like, you could go home or get more. Well, kind of the human greed and like, our overthinking abilities where we think we can always do more. And then eventually most people just go away empty handed. And uh, that's how it was. And it's such a great shot of it all mixing with the sand and dirt and blowing into the wind. And they thought it was just sandbags. They And and I think that just goes to show that uh, evil people don't understand uh, what's truly worthwhile. It's kind of like pearls before swine in a way. Um, Not even... Uh, like family, like Cody's family, that would be completely wasted on them as well because there's just these roaming banded nomads. But I, yep, I got to say, uh, one of the best cautionary tales ever in this movie.
1: Yeah, and the the bandits don't make it out unscathed either. Uh, they are chased down and then are given the firing squad. They're at the very end as they dig their own graves. But yeah, it's, it's also interesting too that even still Curtin and Howard- try to try and go and save Dobbs still even though they both know at this point that he's gypped them both and is running off with their money. Uh, they still have a little bit of respect for him and of course their main focus is more on the money. Uh, but it's still interesting that even though they haven't they haven't exactly been as corrupted as Dobbs had. Up until the very end. Then, of course, you get... uh, Howard begins laughing when they find that the gold... All of the stuff to the gold, it's just the bag that it was in. Which is totally empty now. And it blows away in the wind. And and the the very interesting visual of that bag that held the gold. uh, When Curtin rides off, uh, you see the bag stuck to a cactus on the ground. Uh, And then, of course, you get that that really... I found it to be a very funny line from Howard as he's laughing. And he says, this joke is worth 10 months of work and labor. Uh, And it's just... It's, so, it's actually kind of strangely heartwarming that he's just accepted the fact that he will never have gold in his life and be able to live with it. And so what? He goes back to the village and lives the rest of his life, more or less, in that village where really there is no money. There is, I guess, no I guess there's a currency, I'm sure, but there's really no gold that's being traded there. And Kurt and Ron off into Dallas to, I guess, go visit uh, Cody's family and then spend the rest of his life as a peach farmer. Yeah, very... One of the best, yeah, one of the best cautionary tales, especially when it comes to greed, I guess, because it shows how many different viewpoints there are and some of the best ways and some of the worst ways and what could happen to a person, but at the same time, what really is the most valuable thing in life.
0: And that was one of the kind of the main things that B. Traven was trying to get across with his novel and I guess with his other writings was that if we didn't care so much about material possessions, then life would be much simpler and easier we wouldn't have as many wars and hardships and troubles. And I think that's fairly well represented here is when they do give up those material possessions, then they're still able to have what they wanted all along was, you know, a nice, peaceful, quiet life. And I really do think it's great that Howard says, take my share of what you get from the Burroughs and Pelts and use the money for a ticket to Dallas to see Cody's Widows. And he says, and remember, it's July. There's a fruit harvest going on down there. And I always like to think that Cody does go down to Dallas to actually take care mm-hmm. of, uh, or Curtin goes down to Dallas to take care of Cody's widowed wife and son. And they kind of have a happy life together. And I think this is a great ending for the movie.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely great ending. And yeah, I mean, of course, it also just kind of goes to show that not necessarily to say that money, money is totally evil here. But more to the fact that just an overabundance of it can very easily be corruptible. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for The Treasure of the Sierra Madre?
1: Man, I mean, I guess at this point it really isn't that big of a surprise that I absolutely love this movie. Uh, it's It's – I'm surprised I haven't seen it before this. The more I think about it, because I one of my favorite things to watch just in cinema is to ha, is to show a character, build up this character, and then just tear them down and show the, essentially their descent their descent into madness. I don't. I find that I find that to be very fascinating, especially when done correctly. And this movie does a really good job at doing that, but at the same time teaching a very very good lesson of how greed can very easily drive you in drive you insane. And it. Kind of begins to make you think only about yourself and not about others, and how you more or less just lose your entire value in in life here. And really, the best things that are that what we can live with and what are in life are not necessarily the material things, but the but the people around us. And I found that to be very, 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 very powerful. Especially that especially the very last image that just leaves you with with the cact with the cactus grabbing on to that bag that held the sand that held uh, that held the gold that is now empty. As if, as if it were sand, as it blows away in the wind there behind it. It's a very, very powerful movie, and one that I'm glad I got to see, and one that I would love to return to and dive even deeper into, uh, even more so than we did here, because it's it's one of those movies that I can see myself uh, really living off of his ideals, which is a very big compliment for a movie, I would have to say. Oh, no, 10 out of 10 for me is a high recommend if you haven't seen it.
0: I'm so glad to hear you enjoyed this movie. This was your first time seeing it, so it's so cool your first time seeing it. We got to discuss it together here. And now you know why I love this movie so (laughs) much. Yes, I do. Yeah. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre is considered by many to be one of the greatest films of all time, a pioneering film for its time and to this day it's well-renowned for its memorable story and performances, all for good reason. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre is my favorite Humphrey Bogart film. The story is accessible, the characters are deep, and what the film has to say about human nature should resonate with us all. Journeying into the enticing landscapes where fortune, prosperity, and also danger lies is a thrilling adventure I relish taking with these characters again and again. This is one of my favorite movies. Also, one of Bogart's greatest performances where we get to see him flex his diverse acting chops by playing a multi-layered paranoid person. So far, I still feel Bogart plays his character from Casablanca just a bit better, but they're so different, you may not recognize the actor as the same person. I had fond memories of watching this movie with my dad during the summer, and I look forward to returning to this film again. I'm giving The Treasure of the Sierra Madre Nine stars out of ten with a strong recommend. Such a great movie, and I am so glad we got to review this movie. Listeners, we do want to hear your thoughts on this movie. We want to hear what you thought it had to say with the different themes and how that spoke to you and what you noticed in it as well. Next week, we will be concluding, for now at least, our Humphrey Bogart retrospective series with The Desperate Hours. Which is very different from any of the Humphrey Bogart movies that we've seen, but I'm excited to review that movie and return to it. I've seen it a few times, and I was always very fascinated by it. It's quite scary. Just to give you a little warning.
1: Interesting. It's a scary. It's a scary one. I actually, I think this might be the one that I've heard the, lear- the heard the least about. Um, so I'm pretty interested to see where where the conversation goes.
0: Yeah, it's not one that you hear talked of very often, but it's one that I thought would be good for us to review. And the other movie that is Bogart that I've never seen, but it's kind of one of his roles that really kind of helps him stand out for, from the rest. It's called Petrified Forest. Okay. I've always wanted to see that movie. It looks so good. Yeah. But listeners, we want to thank you for joining us on our review of The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. We love discussing films, and we love discussing them with you. Make sure to share this podcast with your friends and family if you enjoyed it. Make sure sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. That'll really help us in the rankings and get noticed by other people so they can enjoy talking uh, talking about movies and talking about it all together. It's great to talk about movies together. You can follow us on your favorite platforms. Just look in the links in the descriptions below. They're really easy to follow. Just click those and that'll get you where you want to go. So you'll never miss any new content that we put out. And if you do want to support us, if you like this podcast, you like what we're doing, well, Even less than the price of a Starbucks cup of coffee, you could even do a one-time donation uh, that will really help us keep the lights on, and with that donation, you get a lot of great exclusive content that is yours to download and keep forever, even if you did happen to stop donating. Uh, you would get bonus podcasts, our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, movie commentary. So when you watch the movie, turn the volume down a little bit and turn us up and you can hear our thoughts on those movies. We've got a lot of great uh bonus content that's exclusive there just for you, just for a few dollars a month. It will help us keep the lights on here. That money doesn't go into our pocket. That money helps us pay for bandwidth and storage and hosting. It goes into all of those things. So if you like this, we really would appreciate it appreciate a donation and we'd be very grateful for that and your name your first name and the initial of your last name will go up on our website as a thank you under the thank you page and under the donors page so we do want to uh, give you recognition and appreciation for that once again listeners thank you so much for joining us on this Humphrey Bogart retrospective series. We'll be coming back next week with one more Bogart review, for now anyway. And then after that, we'll be coming to you with our Christmas special, and we will be reviewing Miracle on 34th Street, our final review of 2018. And then, of course, we'll be coming back to you very soon after that, talking about our thoughts on the Oscars. The Oscars are coming up, and we will always do an Oscars show, giving our thoughts on what... You know, did the predictions match up to what we thought they would? Are we pleased? Are we not pleased? What what do we think will win? So all of that and more coming up very soon. 2019 is going to be a great year, and we're closing it out the right way with such great reviews. Thank you so much, listeners. We'll catch you next time.
1: And even then, this is this came out in forty eight, which is right in the middle of World War Two,
0: or kind of more so towards the end.
1: I always get the dates mixed up for World War Two. Started in forty five, and ended in fifth forty nine, right?
0: I don't remember. I think it was like pretty much over at this point.
1: All right, I have to look this okay. up. I don't want to be wrong again. World War Two. No, it ended in. Okay. It started in 39 and ended in 45. Yeah, it's been over for okay. a while. <laughs> okay. Error. Let's try this again.
0: I need water. My water runs out fast.